Well, hey there, Gateway family and friends. Great to be back with you, coming to you all the way from the great nation of Australia. Now, I wanna jump straight into things today. So, if you've got your smartphone camera and you have the Bible app installed, which, by the way, it's free, so, you know, get on it. Uh, scan this flow code. It's gonna take you to Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, so while you're doing that, let me just kind of set things up. Hebrews uh, is a letter uh, that's contained now in the new part of the Bible, the New Testament. And it's a letter that we don't know who the author was. There's some speculation, but it, I can't get into that today. The point is, it was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were kind of getting dunked on because they'd left Judaism and they'd kind of joined the dark side, or so their family and friends and fellow neighbors thought about them. And they kind of like it was kind of treasonous in a sense. And so the Jewish people had been making things very difficult for the Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians had lost relationships, they'd lost opportunities, they'd lost possessions, and some of them were considering going back saying, you know, Jesus, this is too much. We're just going to go back to the way it was. Just Judaism, that'll be fine for us. And so the author of this letter wrote to them and, and really encouraged them to keep the faith. And one of the things he did, and this is where I'm going to drop us into, in what's now known as chapter 11, is he wrote this list out for them. And the list is of these kind of heavyweights, of the Jewish faith, these heavyweights that God had used throughout history and raised up and deployed to do incredible things, many of whom it wasn't easy, many of whom were underqualified, many of whom had to push through incredible challenges and incredible obstacles. But the writer was using those people to say to the Jewish Christians, it's worth it. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't go back. And so one of the people is, um, and this is who I'm going to double click on today, is a guy named Moses. Now, before I get into too many specifics, one fascinating thing is the, the writer of this uh, letter to the Jewish Christians. By the way, this list, uh, we now kind of nickname it the Hall of Faith. So Moses was a Hall of Faith inductee and, and and the writer actually started to talk right in the beginning when he talked about Moses as essentially he wouldn't have made it into the hall of faith had it not initially right from the get-go been his parents faith that his journey into being used by God was actually jump-started by the faith of his parents. And, and I'm not saying that to kind of heap more feelings of responsibility to your parents. You're like, oh, great. Thanks, Mark. We already know it's a tough gig. Yes, correct. What I'm saying is the, not so much just the magnitude of the decisions that parents can make on behalf of their kids, but also the opportunities that faith filled decisions can actually open up for their, your kiddos. See, Moses entered the pages of history 
at a time when the Israelites, the Jewish people, were living in captivity as slaves to the Egyptians. But apparently the Jewish people were breeders. And so they started, their population started to grow. And as a result, the Pharaoh of the time, he started to see the Jewish people as a growing threat. So he did what any sociopathic leader would do. He ordered that the firstborn males of each family were to be killed upon delivery by throwing them into the Nile River to drown. Reduce the population, reduce the threat. Well, it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child. That's meant to be a positive thing. In other translations, it says an extraordinary child. And they were not afraid to disobey the king's commands. Had it not been for Moses' parents to take this risk, this step of faith, Moses would never have entered the hall of faith. Okay, so after three months, you know, babies grow, they get noisier, smellier. Moses' parents realized they couldn't hide him any longer. And so Moses' mom put him in a basket and floated him down the Nile River. And I love this. The very same river that Pharaoh had decreed that Moses and other firstborn Jewish boys should have been killed in. Come on. What the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. The very thing, the very vehicle that the enemy was trying to use to thwart God's purposes, God actually redeemed it and used it to accomplish and advance his purposes. So let me just say this, a little bonus thought right now. Some of your wonkiest experiences, some of the biggest obstacles you've had to endure and push through have the potential to be your greatest and strongest and most effective platform if you open yourself up to saying, God, how can you use that? How can you use the scars, the wounds, the memories, the experiences that I've actually come through? How can you use them? Not just to say, you know, part of my testimony, I'm still here, I'm still serving God, but to be used to accomplish your purposes beyond my own life. So, Probably not by coincidence in God's kind of grand scheme of things. Moses was actually found by Pharaoh's daughter. And seemingly she couldn't have children, so she chose to adopt Moses as her very own. All right. In those days, there was no supermarket selling infant formula. So if you weren't the nursing mom, you had to get in a wet nurse to breastfeed the child. So Pharaoh's daughter sent for a wet nurse. And it just so happens that the woman that they handpicked 
was Moses' biological mother. So, in case you missed it, what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn it for good. Because now, (laughs) Moses' mom not only gets to look after her biological son, she's now getting paid to do it by the guy who would have otherwise wanted him dead. Hello? (laughs) Now, Moses ultimately lived to be 120 years old. And big brain Bible scholars essentially slice and dice Moses' life into 40 uh, what Swifties call eras. The first era, Moses lived and grew up as a prince in Egypt. The second era, he was or chose to go out and live as a shepherd in the desert in a place called Midian. And then his final 40-year era, he became the leader of the nation of Israel. In fact, one of the big brain Bible scholars, a guy named D.L. Moody, said it this way. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was a somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. And spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do through a nobody. Now, normally I don't like to give away where we're headed in the messages I preach, but I'm just going to drop one spoiler. One of Moses' greatest superpowers, may have even been his greatest superpower, was the choices he made. He didn't make choices that were always popular. He didn't make choices that were always convenient. His superpower lie in the fact that he filtered his decisions through the lens of God's plans and purposes first. Do you remember back, those of you that, I'm going to say, I don't know, 40 plus, those of you who are 40 plus, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand, some of you can't, uh, There was a time, kids, there was a time when school sports teams were chosen by the physical education teacher choosing two people, typically the two best at their sport, to be the captains of each team. And then those captains got to pick from the people surrounded them who they wanted on their team. I'll have Billy, I'll have Jimbo, I'll have Bob. And essentially what they were doing is they were going through the list of the best players. And then the last two that were left were typically the lousiest. And they were standing there on their own. Everyone's looking at them and like, well, if I really have to, I'll take Jack. Over here, being as progressive as we are in the great nation of Australia, we've now outlawed that, and I only hope that you all have two, or your new premier, whoever that might be, will outlaw it too. But the problem with, well, (laughs) one of the problems with that process is you didn't get to choose which team you were on. But Moses, there was a time in his life where he did get to choose which team he was going to join. So 
He's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's smart. He's rich. He's powerful. He's now living as a prince in Egypt. Historians say he was likely the successor in waiting to Pharaoh. And around this time, approaching the age of 40, he discovered that he was actually, by birth, a Hebrew, an Israelite. The people who were living all around him in Egypt as slaves to the Pharaoh. And he resonated with their suffering and he felt God calling him to a different destiny. It was by faith, those two very important words are going to come up again and again, that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose to leave the palace and go out and live as a shepherd in the desert in Midian. He chose to abandon his adopted status as a prince in Egypt and chose to live as a no-name Israelite in the middle of nowhere. And on the surface, this would have looked like Moses has made the decision to switch teams and join the losing team. But what we're going to discover is that this is Moses' superpower. He chose to filter this decision through God's plans and purposes first, not through what was popular, not through what was convenient. When I was 26 years old, just a few years ago, um, I felt God calling me to change direction in a pretty significant way. And I went and sat down with my parents and I told them that I felt God was telling me to quit my corporate job, which was a very good job, and enroll in Bible college. Now, my parents were born right around either side of World War II. And for that generation, the way you lived your life, in, in, in the way your kids were expected to live their life, was to go to school, get a job, and retire in that job for that same company. Because the number one priority, or certainly one of the top three items, was security. Now, add to that my Parents had both worked hard all of their lives to put my brother and I through a good education, including a private high school. My dad actually took a second job on during the time that we were at high school to be able to afford to it. And, and then I'd gone to university, finished that, got the job in the corporate setting that you would expect to go on graduating from university. And here I am at the age of 26 years old. I'm working in the third largest company in the world. I'm climbing the corporate ladder. I just got given the company vehicle. And I'm telling my parents that I'm going to Bible college. And no judgment, my dad asked me the exact question that you'd expect someone of his generation to ask. He said, 
what will you do after you finish Bible college? He was trying to hold it together. And I respected the question, but I said, look, I honestly don't know. It's impossible to say. It's not like nursing school, you graduate, you become a nurse. It's, it's impossible to say what I'm going to do next. I, all I know, like literally all I know is that God's calling me to go to Bible college. So here's a question for you. Is there a step that God's calling you to take? And maybe you've been stiff-arming him. Maybe you've been sort of ignoring him. Maybe you've been procrastinating. But the only reason, if you were honest with yourself, that you haven't taken that next step yet is because it wouldn't be popular. Or it doesn't seem that it's going to be convenient. Something as simple as, you know, I mean, the cost of living is going up and, and God might be calling you to take a next step or a first step in your giving. It makes no sense from a popularity or a convenience perspective. Everyone's busy. Have you noticed? We wear busy as a badge of honor. Go meet someone. How's it been? Busy? Oh, yeah, busy. I could go on a rant about that, but I think it, it will get off the rails very, very quickly. So I'll spare you that one. Um, but if everyone's busy, then serving in your church makes absolutely no sense. If you've been through some wonkiness in your life and you've got the scars to prove it, then stepping up and leading a life group makes absolutely no sense, but it could be just these sorts of things, these sorts of next steps that God's calling you to take. And if he is, don't filter them through the lens of popularity and convenience. Filter them through the lens of his plans and his purposes. And if you say yes to them, then I can promise you this, then you are on the real adventure. Just last year, uh, my wife, Louisa, who works in education, she was on uh, school holidays and our eight-year-old nephew was there. He was on school holidays as well. And so one particular morning, Louisa brought our nephew over to our house. They were going to be spending the day together. So I said to our nephew, hey, what do you guys got planned for today? What are you doing? And he says to me, uh, well, and he's so excited, we're going on an adventure. And I'm like, wow, that sounds great. Where are you going? He says, I don't know. Oh, well, what are you going to be doing? I don't know. Despite not knowing any details, he was so excited. And his excitement didn't hinge on him knowing the details. His excitement hinged on him, trusting that his auntie was going to take him on a great adventure that he was going to love, that he went along with her for the ride. One of the sticking points is that too many people want to know the entire plot before they say yes. I want to know who lives. I want to know who dies. I want to know what it's going to cost. I want to know when it's going to start, when it's going to finish, how hard it's going to really get. 
And if I can get all of that, then maybe I'll say yes. But see, Moses left the palace aged 40. He didn't know what his adventure was going to look like. But just like our nephew was excited about his adventure because he trusted his auntie, Moses was excited about his adventure because he trusted his God. Didn't trust in the details because he didn't know them. He trusted in his God. And he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. And here we go again. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. And he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. His next 40-year era was going from the palace to going to the desert, living in a tent. Part of saying yes to the adventure, and I'm going full disclosure on this, okay? You won't get this in the Jesus light brochure. I'm going to give you the full disclosure, follow Jesus brochure, is Jesus doesn't call us to a life of perpetual ease. There'll be times when your journey following Jesus looks more like you're on a battleship than a cruise ship. But again, it's all about not prioritizing popularity as the criteria for saying yes. Not prioritizing convenience, but instead prioritizing God's plans and purposes. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of uh, teaching at a leadership seminar in Verona in Italy, the, the home of Romeo and Juliet. And I'm not saying that as a flex. I'm simply saying I was there, incredible privilege, the church in Italy are super hungry. I'm talking about the non-Catholic church, what in Italy they call the Protestanti, the Protestants. Everyone's either Catholic or Protestant. And uh, this leadership seminar was hosted by the church leader in Verona. And he'd put out an APB that there's some guy from Australia who may know one or two things worth hearing about leadership. And uh, people came, this was on a Monday night, Started at 8 p.m., which was, you know, late by some people's standards. Um, and uh, people came from cities like Milan and Florence, which were two to three hours drive away. They'd worked a full day. They'd driven the two to three hours one-way drive to arrive in Verona, ready for this 8 p.m. start of this leadership seminar. And then I taught for two hours, that was the advertised finish time, but the people didn't leave at 10 o'clock. They started handing around the espresso coffee and the little biscuits and people started chatting and people started leaving around 1 a.m. And those that drove two to three hours one way had to drive two to three hours back and then had to be ready for work the very next day. And I'm there and I, so I said to the, the, my friend Mauro, who leads the church in Verona, the one that had organized this seminar, I'm like, Mauro, uh, this seems insane to me. 
like these people, it's a Monday night, they got, they just finished work, they've got work tomorrow, they've driven two to three hours each way, they've spent two hours here locked in, they, I mean, okay, it's their own fault if they stuck around for the coffee and biscuits, but nevertheless, and then they drove back and, and, and they seemed like the most content and happiest and liveliest and engaged people I've ever taught. So what's that all about? And he said, Marco, this is Italy. You are born Catholic, which I know, okay, but I didn't connect the dots in the way that he was about to connect them for me. These people are born Catholic, like you're born Catholic. Whether you even walk inside a Catholic church building, you're born Catholic. Your parents are Catholic, your grandparents were Catholic, your great-grandparents were Catholic, and back and back and so on. The people in your village or your town or your city or your workplace, your extended family, everybody's Catholic. Again, I knew this, but I didn't connect the dots with what he was about to show me. And that was to say, when somebody in Italy chooses to become a Jesus follower, a, a, a Christian Jesus follower, an evangelical, a protestante, uh, when they choose to do that, it is not a light decision. They're not signing up for Jesus following light. They're not signing up for convenience. They're not signing up for popularity. In fact, in many cases, the opposite. They will be uh, distanced by their family. Because, well, you, well uh, we're not good enough for you anymore. This was good enough for your grandparents, your great-grandparents. You know, they're sent like... They're... They will lose relationships. They might lose opportunities. They will be judged. They will be told that they're wrong. And so to have stepped across that line, it, it wasn't an easy step. And, and they did not choose popularity and convenience. So for them to drive two, three hours each way on a Monday night, on a week night, on a work night, on a school night, that it wouldn't have even crossed their minds that this was not convenient because that's not how they filter their decision-making when it comes to following Jesus. Drops Mike, walks away. <laughs>